Hello and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney, and every week I bring you the worst and weirdest the Donald Trump presidency has to offer. Why do I do it? Because this is not normal. And this week we need to start off by talking about the hearing. No, no, no. Not that hearing, the other hearing. Well, we need to talk about that hearing, too, and and we will. Specifically, I'll be talking to to Ian Milheiser from Think Progress about the Neil Gorsuch confirmation hearing later in the episode. But now we have to talk about the other hearing. Uh, I mean, the, the first hearing. This hearing. I have been authorized by the Department of Justice to confirm that the FBI, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And that includes investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. So that was uh, FBI Director James Comey, and he confirmed the fact that the FBI has been investigating the Trump campaign's connections to Russia since July of 2016. You know, maybe he could have uh, announced that right before the election instead of announcing that non-story about Hillary Clinton that cost her the presidency. It's okay. I'm not going to freak out that we were this close to electing the first woman president who was incredibly smart and well-qualified and had a whole slate of progressive, thoughtful policies ready to go on day one and instead elected Donald J. Trump who is a reality television star and genuine idiot, who is a thin-skinned man-baby and pathological liar who is slowly dismantling our constitutional rights and democratic norms. Not going to freak out. Excuse me for just, just a second. Okay, I freaked out a little. But... Look, I mean, honestly, we should all be freaking out a little bit all the time. Kind of like Donald Trump does. He likes to freak out. Like, just look at the three tweets he he wrote just before that same hearing started. James Klepper and the others stated that there is no evidence POTUS colluded with Russia. This story is fake news, and everyone knows it. When Donald Trump says something is fake news, that means dig harder. It means there's a story there he doesn't want you to follow. The Democrats made up and pushed the Russian story as an excuse for running a terrible campaign, big advantage in electoral college, and lost. Okay, he he has a point about the electoral college, but if there's one thing we've learned this week, it's that Democrats did not make up this story. The real story that Congress, the FBI, and all others should be looking into is the leaking of classified information must find leaker now. And this is the Trump and GOP line now. In fact, it was the line of almost every Republican in that hearing. Virtually all their questions to Comey and to NSA Director Mike Rogers were about the people who leaked the information instead of the information itself. They want to focus on the leaks instead of focusing on what Trump and his campaign did. You know, we didn't learn a a ton about that information because, of course, 
the investigation is ongoing and everything's still under tight wraps. But we did learn a lot this week. Just for example, we now know that for certain that Trump's campaign has been under investigation since the summer. We also learned that the head of the House Intelligence Committee, instead of doing his job, went to the White House and said this. Uh, today I briefed the president on the concerns that I had about incidental collection and how it uh, relates to uh, President-elect Trump and uh, his transition team and the concerns that I have. It's impossible to describe how bizarre this press conference in front of the White House was. Let me try to lay it out. So Republican Devin Nunes uh, from California, who, like I said, is the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, got what he said is evidence from the intelligence community that some transition team members were picked up on incidental wiretaps, uh, legal wiretaps uh, during surveillance that apparently has nothing to do with the Russian investigation. And what he was supposed to do with this intelligence was take it to his committee and, and include it in their investigation. But he didn't do that. Uh, instead, he went directly to Trump, to the White House. And keep in mind, the Intelligence Committee is an oversight committee. And what their job is, is to oversee what the intelligence community and the executive branch are doing. Instead, he skipped the other members of his committee and went to Trump and gave Trump this intelligence. And he did this to help Trump, who, of course, has been caught up in his sort of bonkers, disproven claims about being wiretapped by Obama. And, and what Nunes said, it doesn't prove those claims. It just muddies the waters enough so that Trump can claim he's been vindicated, which he hasn't. But there's more. Uh, it also came out that Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, uh, you may remember he replaced Corey Lewandowski and basically ran the campaign for five months. Ten years ago, he worked with a Russian oligarch to, and this is from a memo that Man Manafort wrote himself, greatly benefit the Putin government. He wrote a plan to benefit the, Pu the Putin government 10 years ago. And CNN reported on March 22nd that Trump associates may have coordinated with Russian operatives on when to release the hacked information. Remember the, the DNC emails and the Podesta emails that damaged the Clinton campaign completely unfairly. This stuff just keeps coming out. This story is moving so fast. You don't know what the next few hours, let alone days or even weeks will bring. The one thing we do know is that some people very closely associated with the president of the United States and possibly the president himself are in very, very deep hot water. This is easily Watergate level bad, if not worse. I mean, Nixon's cronies didn't coordinate with a foreign adversary when they were stealing information from the DNC. And if you think that story's moving quickly, let's take a look at the Trump care bill. Uh, so I record the podcast on Thursday nights. And as of this moment, Trump, according to reports, has ceremoniously announced he will no longer negotiate with his fellow Republicans to pass the bill. And remember, he threatened them and said, I'm going to come after you if they didn't support the bill. Tr Trump's supposed to be like the world's greatest deal maker. This is his number one selling point, right? And the very first bill 
where he runs into trouble, he throws up his hands and says, no mas, no mas. Uh, They were supposed to pass the bill today, uh, Thursday, March 23rd. And do you know why Republicans wanted to pass this bill today? Because it's the anniversary of the day Obamacare was enacted. That's the only reason, which is just completely shitty. And they missed their cute little deadline because they couldn't manage to get the votes they needed. So now they're pushing the vote to uh, what will be today when you're listening to this, uh, Friday. And uh, honestly, I I have no idea what's going to happen in that vote. Uh, A lot of people are saying it's 50-50. It all depends on what happens on the floor. And, And frankly, I got out of the prediction game after November 2016. There's a decent chance that you, by the time you listen to this podcast, uh, you'll already know what happened with the bill. So why should I make a prediction? But there are two possibilities. One is that it loses or they, they pull the bill because they know they're going to lose, which is the same thing, which would be a humiliating, humiliating loss for Paul Ryan and for Donald Trump, who both put everything they have behind this bill. Or they win, which means they just spent all the political capital in the world pushing a deeply unpopular bill. Uh, Knipiak did a poll today uh, that puts the popularity of this bill at 17%, the approval of this bill. And and let's talk for a moment about why the Trump Care bill is so unpopular. Uh, it's called the American Health Care Act, but it, it doesn't give people health care. It takes it away from 24 million Americans. They're going to lose their health care because of this if it passes and becomes the law. But that alone wasn't enough to get the most conservative Republicans to vote for it. They wanted the bill to be worse. So they're making it worse. Um, They have offered to make it so insurance doesn't have to cover anything you need. Your insurance won't have to cover your hospital visits. It won't have to cover preventative care. It won't have to cover emergency care. And of course, because Republicans are so pro-life, and so deeply concerned about the fate of the unborn, your insurance will no longer have to cover pregnancy, maternity, or newborn care, let alone pediatric care. From now on, your insurance, I I don't know, it doesn't say it in the bill, but I assume that it gets you 50 cents off a box of Band-Aids. And not the cool ones with the Avengers on them, but like the beige, plasticky ones that rip every time you try to wrap it around your finger. Seriously, this, this bill makes everyone's health care worse, unless it just takes your health care away entirely. And it gives billions and billions of dollars in tax breaks to, wait for it, because this is a, a shocker, big corporations and the super rich. It is the worst. And the people who are pushing this bill, including Donald Trump, they're just bad people. It really is that simple. Uh, You'll remember from last week's episode, because you listened to last week's episode, because you are a faithful The Trump Scorecard listener, and honestly, I love you for that. I really do. So you'll remember uh, last week I talked to Summer Brennan about the huge cuts Trump has in store for the United Nations and how devastating that would be to some of the world's most vulnerable people. Uh, But cutting funding isn't the only way you can undermine the U.N., Uh, For example, you could also send some of the worst people on Earth to represent us there. Uh, This is from the Huffington Post on March 17th. 
President Donald Trump appointed two delegates to the 61st session of the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women this week, who believe birth control access is, quote, antithetical to the values and needs of women worldwide. You got that, ladies? Birth control is antithetical to your values and your needs. So, you know, this is a UN commission that studies and recommends policies to, to help the most vulnerable women in the world. Uh, you know, women stuck in the the most dire poverty, which means they're the least likely to be educated, most likely to suffer abuse, most likely to be forced to marry early, and the least likely to have access to birth control, meaning they don't have the basic ability to decide their own futures for themselves. And who is Trump sending to this commission? Two women who think birth control pills are made out of Satan powder by Satan in the Satan Pharmacy. Uh, One of the women is the executive vice president for the Center for Family and Human Rights, which is one of those organizations that sounds nice, Center for Family and Human Rights. Only the Southern Poverty Law Center declared that group a hate group. A hate group. And Trump is sending her to the United Nations to represent all of us. Uh, They argue that paying for birth control uses up funds that can be used for things like education, healthcare, infrastructure, you know, a lot of things to, to help women in impoverished nations. But, but two things about that. First, women can't lead the lives they want without control over when and how they have children, no matter what their education or their infrastructure is like. They just can't. And second, birth control saves money. It'll free up funds for every other priority these women claim to care about. Mostly, this is just an embarrassing and ugly move by the Trump White House. It it makes us look ignorant and backwards. You know, but then again, so did electing Donald Trump. You know what? Let's go to quick hits. Quick hits. This is from Forbes on March 22nd. Two months ago, Donald Trump's lawyer, Sherry Dillon, stood in Trump Tower and announced that the president would donate all profits from foreign governments at his hotels to the U.S. Treasury, part of an effort to resolve concerns that he would be in violation of a little-known clause in the U.S. Constitution the day he took office. Now Phil Ruffin, who owns the Trump International Hotel Las Vegas in a 50-50 joint venture with the president, says that's not happening. Y'all remember that? Trump said he'd give all the money foreign governments spent in his hotels to the Treasury. But to do that, you have to count it. And the co- one of the co-owners at his hotel is saying that's not happening, which is surprising to exactly no one. You know, and by the way, he said he'd give money from foreign governments uh, that they spend at his hotels. But staying at his hotels, it's just one way that foreign governments can pour money into his pockets. Uh, For example, there was a woman with very deep connections to the Chinese government recently uh, who who spent millions on a condo in a Trump building. Uh, The Chinese government itself gave Trump a trademark on his name that he'd been seeking for years after he was elected president. And we have no idea who's buying $200,000 memberships at Mar-a-Lago. So the hotel bills are, are really just a drop in the bucket. Quick hit. German Chancellor Angela Merkel came to D.C. this week, and Trump made this weird joke about being wiretapped by Obama. 
Uh, as far as uh, wiretapping, I guess, by, you know, this past administration, at least we have something in common, perhaps. This is two international incidents for the price of one. Not only did he bring up an embarrassing episode where the National Security Agency was found to have tapped Merkel's phone, but it came in the context of accusations he made that the British government tapped his phones at Obama's request. You know, that the wiretapping thing he keeps lying about. He had to, like, apologize to the British government, and then the White House denied they'd made an apology. It's just uh, another story you can't follow. And unfortunately, this is a podcast, so I can't show you Merkel's face, but honestly, the only word that describes it is flabbergasted. You know, I mean, there's probably a better word for it, but it'd be in German. Quick hits. There ain't much bipartisanship in Washington these days, but there's a rare spot of agreement when it comes to the head of the Office of Special Counsel. This is a, a small federal agency that investigates retaliation against government whistleblowers. And the current head, Carolyn Lerner, is legendarily effective, completely transformed the agency. Republicans and Democrats agree they love her, Obama renominated her, and Trump withdrew the nomination. Because of course he did. And yeah, you need to ask yourself why Trump wouldn't want the agency that protects whistleblowers to be effective. Or maybe you don't need to ask. We already know, don't we? There were three really huge stories this week. Uh, we already talked about the Russian investigation and the health care bill. So the third is Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch. He appeared for his confirmation hearings in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I'll be honest, I, I didn't have a chance to pay as close attention to that story as I did the other two. What is difficult about the Trump administration is so many terrible things are happening at once that I think it's hard for people to focus. And people were not focusing on Gorsuch, and specifically a lot of Democratic senators um, were not focusing on Gorsuch. That's why I talked to Ian Milheiser. He's the justice editor at Think Progress, and he followed the hearings very closely. He's also the author of Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. I, I love that title. Uh, you can find a link to the book on the website and also, of course, links to all the stories I talk about. That website is thetrumpscorecard.org. And I started off by asking Ian a, a simple question. Should Neil Gorsuch be the next Supreme Court Justice of the United States? <laughs> God, no. Okay, well, we're, we're going to need a little more than just that. Okay, so the thing that's striking about Judge Gorsuch is, you know, just 10 years ago, like when George Bush was picking nominees, you know, even though he, he assured people when he was running for election that he liked Scalia and Thomas, he like sort of went out of his way, you know, his, his own nominees sort of went out of their way to distance themselves from some of the rigidity that you saw with, with in Scalia and Thomas's um, uh, opinions, and, and you know, especially Chief Justice Roberts, like really went out of his way to emphasize, oh, I'm going to be so modest. I'm, uh, you know, I don't bring any agenda to the court. And Gorsuch didn't run away from that at all. I mean, he did have some rhetoric in his opening statement about how he intends, to, you know, how judges are supposed to have a modest role. But he quickly abandoned that, and, and it's clear why. When you look at his record, this is someone who is probably to Scalia's right, 
maybe as far to the right as Justice Thomas, who is the most conservative member of the Supreme Court. So it's really stunning to me just how there isn't an attempt to hide who this guy is. I mean, this guy is going to get on the court, and he's going to be – we are lucky. We should consider ourselves lucky. If he is only another Scalia, and there's you know no real hints that he's anything else, I asked him exactly what makes Gorsuch so dangerous. Buckle in for this one, folks, because it it gets into the weeds in a good way. There's something called the Chevron Doctrine, and what Chevron says is essentially when you have a law that authorizes an agency to regulate, and that happens all the time. If you read like the Clean Air Act, for example, the Clean Air Act doesn't have a bunch of specific things where it says like emission standards should be this, and this power plant can kick out this much pollution, this power plant can kick out this much pollution, and so on and so forth. What the clear what the Clean Air Act says is it says that the EPA shall set standards for air pollution, and then it provides a formula. So like often we'll say something – or not a formula, then it provides a, a standard. So often we'll say something like, EPA, you have to see what the pre- best prevailing method of reducing pollution is within this industry. And then once you've determined that, you have to make sure that all the players with that industry meet that standard. You know, it, It's something that gives the EPA enough instructions that they know what to do, but also allows them to adapt things um, – well, also allows them to adapt where our regulate where our regulations are as new technologies emerge and as we you know as science develops and we just learn more about pollutants. Um, Gorsuch wants to do two things. One is there's this thing called the Chevron Doctrine, which says that when it's unclear if an agency is allowed to do what it's what it tried to do, courts will typically defer to the agency. And in practice, that means that when you have a Republican president, the agency regulations move to the right. When you have a Democratic president, the regulations move to the left. And it, and it seems to me that that's right. You know, in, in a democracy, it should matter who is you know the person is who's elected to run the government. Um, Gorsuch wants to tr- transfer a lot of that power that agencies have to the judiciary. So instead of deferring. Um, the judiciary will determine on its own which regulations are good and which regulations are bad. And that will mean that you will have a Republican judiciary, because if Gorsuch is confirmed, you know, the Republicans are going to regain control of the Supreme Court making these calls. And when that means that when you have a Republican president, the regulations will probably continue to move to the right. And when you have a Democratic president, you won't be able to move them to the left because the Supreme Court's going to, going to stop that. Um, that's actually one, the, the least radical of the two things that Gorsuch may want to do in this space. The other thing is that he has one opinion, and, and I want to be precise in, in describing it because um, he's not entirely clear what his agenda is. But he talks about the possibility of reviving something called the non-delegation doctrine. Um, And in its strongest form, the non-delegation doctrine would say that Congress can't delegate power at all to agencies. So Congress would no longer be allowed to say to the EPA, we want you to look at the the best available technologies and base base your standards on it. 
Um, and that would mean, among other things, we couldn't really have an environmental policy in this country anymore because Congress doesn't have the ability to constantly monitor that kind of stuff. Um, it would mean that we lose a lot of our food safety law, a lot of our labor regulations. It would, it would be a fundamental rethinking of our government in a way that you haven't seen since you know, probably the 19th century. And did we learn anything during the hearings? We learned that he has mannerisms that remind me of the uh, the mayor from the third season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He said, gosh and golly, a whole lot. Um, but, you know, I'm not just being flip here. I, I mean, the, the confirmation hearing itself is, uh, is broken. Um, you know, what strikes me is that with each nominee, and I think this is true for both Democratic and Republican nominees, we learn less and less about the nominee with each hearing. Um, you know, Gorsuch was adamant at times that he would not say what he thinks about any Supreme Court case. And at times this rose to absurd levels. You know, people, you know, one senator asked him, you know, will you say that Brown v. Board of Education was correctly decided? Um, and Gorsuch, um, I mean, he, he, he said that it's like, follows the, you know, the original understanding of, you know, he wouldn't actually say those words. Um, you know, he was asked, "Will you say that Loving v. Virginia, the case that ban that that, um, uh, that outlawed bans on interracial marriage, will you say that that that, that was correctly decided?" And he couldn't get him to say to say that. Um, and the game here is because you know he knows that if he's once he says one of those cases are correctly decided, then he's going to be asked about other cases, and you know his answers might be revealing. But it it is stunning to me. How much this this notion has set in that a nominee can could stand up there could say absolutely nothing. So the real question, of course, is can we stop this guy from getting a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land? I think it comes down to two things. I mean, realistically, the odds are slim, and you know that's just math. There's there's 52 Republicans and only 48 Democrats. Um, what it comes down to is, first of all, there has to be enough Democrats to hold a filibuster together because when the, when the rules were changed um, a few years ago to say that you only needed 51 votes to confirm someone, that did not include the Supreme Court. And so, so long as eight Democrats don't cave to Donald Trump, there could still be a filibuster. And then the question is, it only takes 51 votes to change the rules in the Senate, whether the Republicans can hang together, um, or at least 51 of them can hang together, in order to change the rules to allow um, you, you, you to get rid of the filibuster. I mean, I think there's a high likelihood that with control of the Supreme Court on the line, and not just control of the Supreme Court, but like Gorsuch is probably the fifth vote to hold to uphold a lot of voter suppression laws that Republicans are counting on in order to keep winning their elections. You know, Gorsuch might be the fifth vote. There's a big gerrymandering case coming up right now, and uh, Gorsuch might be the fifth vote to say that partisan gerrymandering is perfectly cool, um, and they don't want to. You know, they don't want to miss out on that opportunity. You know, they could lose the House if um, if they can't gerrymander it. Um, so, we're, so they know that, that there's a lot of stake for them, and I think there will probably be enough votes um, to throw out the filibuster, but I'm not 100 percent sure. And so for that reason, I think that Democrats would be dumb 
not to filibuster because, you know, the worst case scenario is the thing that was always going to happen anyway happens anyway. And the best case scenario is that America is saved from Neil Gorsuch. Because if he does win the nomination, we're really screwed, not just on regulation, on a whole host of issues concerning our most basic fundamental rights. On virtually every issue, I would expect him to be at least a conventional Republican. And a conventional Republican right now is someone who's pretty hostile to voting rights. Um, I, you know, I've seen nothing. He, he doesn't have a, gay, a major gay rights opinion, but you know, everything that he has said about what is called substantive due process, which is the doctrine that was used in most of the major gay rights cases, suggests that you know, he, he does not like those cases. Um, and what we do know is that he is, will be extraordinarily hostile to reproductive rights. Um, and I base that on three things. Um, one is his vote in the Hobby Lobby case, where he voted to grant women's bosses extraordinary new powers to limit those women's access to birth control if the, um, if the employer objects to birth control on religious grounds. Um, the second is a case involving Planned Parenthood, where he manipulated his court's rules in a really odd way um, in order to try to defund uh, Planned Parenthood of Utah. Um, and then the third is a book that he wrote that is ostensibly about euthanasia, um, where, where, where he comes out against um, you know, so-called death with dignity laws. But, in the, but his book is just riddled with the sort of rhetoric that you see from people who oppose abortion about the sanctity of life and about how you know, you know the dignity of life requires that you know that that nothing is ever done to destroy human life and so on and so forth and you know you could take his book and cross out the word euthanasia and write in abortion and it would read like a speech that's given in an anti-abortion rally um, so I am as close to certain as anyone can possibly be that he's a vote to overrule Roe v. Wade. Look, Gorsuch is a really good package. He has the look of a Supreme Court justice. The answers I did manage to catch during his hearings all made him sound reasonable and moderate and fair, which is exactly the point of these hearings, right? Make him look good. Then he can get on the bench and be as nasty as he wants to be. And it sounds like he's going to be really really bad. So I hope Democrats stay united to stop this guy. And it's not just about Gorsuch and all the terrible things he'll do. It's also about legitimizing a president who is currently under investigation uh, for ties to a foreign government during his campaign. That's important. Does Donald Trump have a right to appoint a SCOTUS justice? It's, it's also about handing this president an important loss. Hopefully he'll lose on health care, and he deserves to lose on this too. And yes, it is about Republicans holding this seat open for a year when they wouldn't even give a qualified consensus candidate a hearing. So filibuster his ass, Democrats. Do it for Merrick Garland. You know, I, I have to finish a week like this, just a crazy, crazy week like this on a fun note. I always do, but this time it's, this week was stressful. I got to finish on a fun note. So I just want to read this brief clip from a, a Vanity Fair story about Trump uh, from March 22nd. Besides, vintage Trump is not going anywhere anytime soon. A couple of weeks earlier, 
During a visit by the Japanese Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe, the president told an acquaintance that he was obsessed with the translator's breasts, although he expressed this in his own fragrant fashion. Okay, I don't, I don't know what fragrant means there. Like he, did he like fart the words out in Morse code or, I don't know what that means. But I, I do want to say that everyone who has ever hoped for the fabled Trump pivot, there you are. It's not happening. Ever. Not in terms of policy, and certainly not in terms of his personal behavior. Trump is Trump is Trump is Trump, and he will always be Donald Trump. And that's it for another mind-bendingly stupid week with Donald Trump as our president. I want to thank Ian Milheiser for coming on to talk with me about Neil Gorsuch. And remember to write me with stories you think I should cover or ideas to make the podcast better. You can reach me via email at thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at Jesse Burney. Uh, you can also find out more information about all the stories we covered today on the website. That's thetrumpscorecard.org. And of course, head to Facebook to like us on Facebook and, and get some bonus uh, content. That's facebook.com slash thetrumpscorecard. Sniffle as hard as you can. All right, now do more sniffling, okay, while she's recording. If you sniffle while she records, I have to start over again. The Trump Scorecard is written, edited, hosted, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. I'll be back next week, and remember... This is not normal.